Welcome to another edition of Chasing Emmy. My name is Lynette Rice. I'm here with my good pal Kristen Baldwin, but I'm not here with my good pal Henry. He could not make it this week. Kristen, are you sad? I'm sad, but you know what? He's on an important assignment. We just have to let him do his thing out in the world. We miss you, Henry, and you are here with us in spirit. Do you think his assignment is Emmy-related? For Henry, all roads lead to the Emmys. So, probably. (laughs) Probably. All right, well, this week we wanted to uh, discuss the outstanding limited series. We're going to break that down. And then later on in the show, Kristen, well, Kristen, I I think you should do the honors. Who are you going to be talking to this week? I'm going to be talking to Haley Atwell, star of Howard's End, the updated production that uh, just ran on Stars. She is so good as Margaret Schlegel. I love it. I love it. I wish I could. I wish I could hug her through the phone. And how were you about that when you heard that Stars wanted to remake, remake or, or do the miniseries? Because I have to tell you, I was a little cool to the idea when I first heard. Right, because the book is amazing. And there was a classic Merchant Ivory film that was made and was, of course, fantastic. So there's always a risk, like, why are you even bothering to do this? You know, it's already been done well. But the fact that they did it over four episodes, they really got to explore more of the characters. And uh, they were so faithful to the book. And it was so beautifully shot and produced. I just loved it so much. Uh, I really just want to put it on a cracker and eat it up. Oh, wow. All righty. Okay. Uh, well, let's uh, delve into this uh, this week's uh, category. This is a screwy one, and it's had a screwy history uh, with the Emmys in terms of who gets to participate in it. And I feel like the rules definitely need to be tweaked because I feel like there's been a little a little manipulation going on. Give it. Give us an example, Kristen. Well, the top example is last year's winner, Big Little Lies. You know, the criteria for an outstanding limited series are series that are two or more episodes with a total running time of at least 150 minutes and must tell a complete no recurring story with no ongoing storyline. So, of course, Big Little Lies, when HBO announced it, it was going to be a limited series. And so you thought, okay, that's fine. It tells the story of the book and it has a beginning, middle and end. But... You know, little did we know at the time, HBO decided after it was such a huge hit and people loved it that they were going to do a season two. So now Big Little Lies already has a limited series Emmy when it turned out it was an unlimited series. Which is completely unfair. And also precedent that was set by Downton Abbey, too. Way back in time, they they started in that category, correct? Yeah, they started, they won in that category in 2011. And then, you know, Downton Abbey became an ongoing uh, drama, beloved drama. So I don't know exactly how the Academy could rule against this because they can't like make networks sign in blood that they're never going to renew these series that they announce as a limited series. But it does seem like there's some uh, shenanigans going on that allows people to rack up an Emmy win. Possibly they should have just competed in the drama category to begin with. I, you know, I feel like they could make them say something in blood. I mean, let's think back at miniseries. I mean, I don't think that's unrealistic. Okay, think about like Hatfield and McCoy's, for example. That was a, a miniseries that history did. And that was a miniseries. That's it. There's no more Hatfields and McCoy's season two. I feel like when producers go into a project, you definitely know if this one's got legs or if this is a limited 
story. So I, I, I feel like it's to the point now that this category is being taken advantage of. They've, they've got to change the rules. They definitely have to change the rules because the straight up movies don't have a freaking prayer against Ryan Murphy. I mean, let's be honest. Absolutely not. And it really is kind of the Ryan Murphy category now. Um, Feud, Betty and Joan, uh, People versus O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Certainly, I think an assassination of Gianni Versace will be nominated this year. Horror Story, American Horror Story started competing in this category in 2012 because also it can be an anthology. It can be a show that has either the same ensemble of cast or a big recurring amount of cast, but they're telling a new story every season. So you can every different season of uh, American Horror Story qualifies as limited series. So that's he's really dominated. And, you know, I don't uh, think that's going to change anytime soon. But I, I do understand why Ryan would want to go into these categories, especially, you know, where it's such a target-rich environment in the drama series now. There's so many great dramas you have to go up to. I mean, who wants to compete against Game of Thrones? I mean, let's be honest. But at the same time, I mean, come on. I just don't know why they don't do outstanding limited series. They have actors together, movies and limited series actors together. Why don't they just make everything separate? I don't really understand that. Yeah, like the categories, outstanding limited series for sure. And then... (laughs) And then, no take backs. Uh, yeah, no take backs. And then outstanding limited series for now. Maybe that's for now. Right. Outstanding prestige series that reserves the right to become a limited series. Movies still have their own category, though, right? They do. They do have their own category. Yes. They do. But the acting, the, you know, so but the actors are lumped in with the movie actors. So they certainly, you know, it's hard for them to compete. But I do think they need to do, just like they do outstanding reality competition or outstanding reality unstructured, I feel like they have to do outstanding limited series. For sure. For sure. And and reserve the right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes. We figured it out. We're going to write this. All right. Um, there, wait, there's a... There's a few more stats we wanted to share with you uh, about this crazy category. Uh, No streaming series has ever won uh, in this category. Since 2008, only HBO, Fox, and PBS have won. PBS won once for Little Dorrit. Did you ever see that, Kristen? Little Dorrit? I did not. Anyway, Little Dorrit uh, won for PBS. You know, and they also have Little Women coming this season, so perhaps they will... uh win in this category again but yeah it's netflix has never won you know hulu amazon none of that tell me about the past four winners if you happen to know them just off the top of your head do you know them i sure do i do i do that's amazing in 2017 it was big little lies as we discussed in 2016 people versus oj simpson american crime story 2015 olive kittredge literally no memory of that 2014 Fargo, which is another anthology series. And 2013 is the last time an actual movie movie uh, took the category. It was Behind the Candelabra, which was HBO. Oh, my God. Those were all. Did you never see all of Kittredge? No, I did not. Oh, Kristen Baldwin. Oh, you got to you got to see that. It's good stuff. Good stuff. All those winners quite deserving. Very quite deserving, and it was especially when the when OJ won and all the those actors paraded on there. Ah, great stuff, good stuff. Definitely deserving. All right, so um, should we discuss possible nominees then for this year? Yes, let's let's. All right, you uh, you start. I think you know one that is a uh, 
sort of a shoe in is Twin Peaks. And this is a limited series for sure. David Lynch has basically said, I brought it back. I did my 13 or 18 or whatever episode number of episodes it was and we're done. I think it's very unlikely that Twin Peaks will come back again. Maybe it will in like another 20 years, but this was the Showtime Twin Peaks The Return. It was excellent on all counts. It was crazy, but it was also wonderful. And I think it'll definitely get a nomination. I feel like, without a doubt, uh, Assassination of Gianni Versace is going to get the big nod. Uh, I, it's, a, it's such a prestige project. Of course, it's another Ryan Murphy joint. There's so much great buzz around this one. Told a great story. I mean, and again, it's Ryan Murphy's category always to lose. For my next pick, I'd probably say Godless. I'm really hoping this Netflix Western, which was fantastic. It was about a town, a uh, Western town where all the men were basically dead or too old. And so the women of the town had to protect the town from bad guys and nefarious characters. And it was so beautifully done. I don't even like Westerns and I loved it. I'm going to jump ahead of you and I'm going to say Howard's End for another nomination. That feels like a sure bet. I hope so. You feel good about that one? I do. I hope so. Then I think the last one is going to be Looming Tower. And even though I did not enjoy The Looming Tower on Hulu, I think anytime anything is 9-11 adjacent, people feel like it has to be quality. So, and this certainly had a good cast, uh, and it's a very serious subject matter. I, I think it's sort of going to get the uh, obligatory nod, even if people didn't watch it, because they'll think, oh, well, 9-11, that's important. Uh, I feel like those are five great choices. This one feels like a weird category to make a plea for, but there are some that loom out there, like the Tower, as potential of our other uh, nominees. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking Patrick Melrose, of course, the good Benedict Humberbatch. What do you think? You, did, you weren't a big fan of that. I really did not like it, but I think it's a very, I think he'll definitely get an actor nod. I do think there's a good chance it will get nominated. I think another dark horse could be American Vandal, which is uh, Netflix's sort of comedy prime doc, you know, faux docuseries. I think it got a lot of momentum over the past year and people were discovering it and really loving it. So I think that's another possibility. Okay, there's no other one that I feel passionate about. So let's move on to Outstanding Leading Actor in a Limited Series or TV Movie. No actor, again, just a little stats for you. No actor has won in this category from a streaming series. Uh, And only Hal Holbrook and Laurence Olivier have more nominations than Benedict Cumberbatch in this category, who has five, uh, along with a bunch of people. And I just said that to you off the top of my head. Aren't you impressed, Kristen? I am impressed. Only most of his nominations, I believe, are for Sherlock, but people like The Batch. I think any, and there was no Sherlock to nominate him in this year, so I think, and he played a drug addict, and, you know, that's like, I feel like you're almost required to get a nomination if you play somebody with mental illness or a drug drug problem. Okay, Kristen, uh, do you happen to know who the previous winners are in this category? In 2017, it was Riz Ahmed, who was the star of HBO's The Night Of. He was fantastic. 2016, uh, Courtney B. Vance for playing Johnny Cochran on People vs. O.J. Simpson. He was fantastic. 2015 was Richard Jenkins from Olive Kittredge, which I'll take your word for it, was uh, quality TV. And 2014 was Benedict Cumberbatch for Sherlock, The Lying Detective. And then uh, I want to say this because I think you brought up a... A 2013 too. Michael Douglas won for Behind the Candelabra for playing uh, Liberace. 
All right, let's talk about possible nominees. Uh, I'm going to start with, uh, I feel like a slam dunk is uh, Darren Chris from Assassination of Gianni Versace. Um, I, I didn't watch this all the way through. You watched it all the way through, right, Kristen? Yes, and he's fantastic. Whatever problems you might have with the show, which I don't understand anybody who has any problems with it, but I... I uh, was just having this argument with Dalton Ross uh, over on EW Radio about it. He was a fantastic choice for this role, and he is really amazing in it. And uh, I feel like there's just absolutely no way he won't get nominated. And I think there's a very good chance he'll win. I agree. I think another slam dunk is Kyle McLaughlin on Twin Peaks. He played, I don't know, I think it was four roles on that show. He was Dale Cooper. He was Dougie. He was Evil Dale. I feel like there was one other one mixed in there, pre-Dougie. So, like, he was doing so many different parts. He carried the show. You know, the show is crazy, uh, but he was, he gave so many different levels of uh, nuance to his performance. I just think it would be insane for him not to be nominated. I'm definitely going to say Al Pacino uh, for Paterno. I'll leave my opinion aside for the movie. I think... Al Pacino is going to get it simply because he's Al Pacino. He's Al Pacino, exactly. And I think that's a very good bet. And I don't think there were, there was a super strong crop of TV movies to choose from in this category. So I think the fact that he's Al Pacino playing a very uh, controversial role will work in his favor. I mean, he's great at that role. I mean, he's, he's incredible about it. I, I certainly hope that his Al Pacino-ness doesn't prevent Darren uh, from winning the, in a category, and there's and that's a possibility. That's a strong possibility. I think he'll get nominated. I think it would be unlikely if he won. But I do think another nominee will be Benedict Cumberbatch for Patrick Melrose because he got to have a cocaine and heroin freakout, and voters love that. Uh, yeah, I agree on but uh, Benedict big time, um, and I wouldn't mind hearing that acceptance speech. By the way, uh, another one I'm going to say Michael P. Jordan for Fahrenheit 451. I didn't love this movie, but I thought Michael was a force. I enjoy, I just enjoy watching him and whatever he does. All right, so that's five. Well, I feel like we could have seven in the category. They definitely would have seven. So let's throw them in. All right, let's throw them in. Another one too, of course, is um, Antonio Banderas for Genius Picasso. I just honestly, I can't even look at those photos of him as Picasso without breaking into laughter. It just looks so kind of goofy. That said, maybe he's fantastic, but like, I'd like to plead for Matthew McFadden, who plays Mr. Wilcox in Howard's End, and he is fantastic. And uh, really, it's a really different role than what he's in right now. He's on Succession on HBO. So I think he's a long shot, but I'd love for him to get nominated. All right, let's move on to lead actress in a limited series or TV movie. Please share with us the previous winners in this category. So in 2017, we had Nicole Kidman, Big Little Eyes. 2016, Sarah Paulson for playing Marsha Clark in People vs. OJ. 2015, it was Frances McDormand in Olive Kittredge. 2014, Jessica Lange for American Horror Story. And 2013, Laura Linney for The Big C, Hereafter. In 2012, there was actually Julianne Moore for playing Sarah Palin in Game Change. Those are great. All such great winners. Yeah. Yeah. A fun little stat here. Helen Mirren has won four times in this category. That was for... um, that police drama, right, that she did? Was it for, uh, I'd have to look it up. Um, why am I blanking? Prime Suspect. Yes, yes. I, I believe so. And then Patty Duke and Laura Linney each won three times apiece. 
What is interesting about the possibilities for nominations this year is Versace, which is the limited series from Ryan Murphy, basically had no leading women in it. So there won't be any women like a Sarah Paulson, you know, to dominate in this category. So that opens up some possibilities because even though she was in American Horror Story cult, I don't know that that version of Horror Story was really beloved. And so... I think there's enough else out there that she might uh, not get a nomination this year. But I think the the first one to start with would be Haley Atwell from Howard's End, who we'll be talking to a little later in the show. She's fantastic. Another one, at least for me, is Edie Falco, uh, who played the Menendez attorney in Menendez Murders. Uh, I, Edie is like an, an old-time favorite. And why, why are you smiling? She's no, she's great in that. I mean, the show was kind of goofy, but I loved it. And her wigs were on point. If they give an Emmy for wigs, they should give it to everyone involved in the wigs in the Menendez murders because they were they were on point. But she was great as Leslie Abramson. Who's another one for this category? This one is sort of a late entry. Laura Dern in The Tale. This is a movie that's on HBO and uh it's based on a, a memoir about childhood sexual abuse. So it's certainly a very serious and intense role. And Laura Dern is great. And the Academy does love her. So I think there's a good chance she'll get a nomination. I'm going to say uh, Michelle Dockery for Godless. Uh, I think Michelle Dockery uh, is already also a, a TV Academy fave because of her great uh, work on Downton Abbey. And Godless is a good one. I think you, you talked about this earlier. Yeah, and she is fantastic in it. It's certainly, you know, miles away from Lady Mary. You know, it's interesting, like, another possibility is Elizabeth Moss for Top of the Lake, China Girl, but I don't think this season of Top of the Lake was as beloved, and because she'll probably get uh, a nomination for Handmaid's Tale again, I don't know that the Academy will feel the need to, to recognize her here. I think another option to take that place would be Kristen Milotti from Black Mirror, the USS Callister episode, which I believe is entering as a movie. So uh, that would, uh, I think there was so much written about that episode and people really love Black Mirror uh, and she was uh, fantastic in it. So I think she's got a shot. Kristen, I'm really afraid this is a category during the show that people are going to get up and go to the bathroom because a lot of these movies, I don't think people have seen. I These are, these are, I mean, Top of the Lake, even Godless, uh, Regina King at Seven Seconds on Netflix. I don't think These weren't hugely talked about projects. Yeah, I think this could be a bathroom break time, which is too bad because it's, you know, a lot of good performances. But uh, the last possibility we haven't talked about is uh, Jessica Biel for The Sinner. I feel like that's going to be a tough sell simply because it happened quite a while ago. And even though the show was renewed for a second season with a new story, I don't know how well Emmy voters really remember it. Uh, let's let's only say, so Jessica Biel, the sinner. We are going to say Sarah Paulson from American Horror Story Cult, right? I don't think we are. But because it's Sarah Paulson, does she rise above the material? I don't think she does. I mean, she was good, but I don't think anybody liked Cult. All right, so Jessica Biel, Laura Dern for The Tale, Elizabeth Moss for Top of the Lake China Girl, Kristen Bellotti for Black Mirror, Michelle Dockery, Godless, Haley Atwell, Howard's End, and Edie Falco, Menendez, Murders, and The Wigs. That's what, seven? That's seven. I think Edie Falco, as much as they love her, that show was pretty cheesy, and I think there's a chance she won't get nominated. Or Elizabeth Moss, like I said, I think there's a chance they'd leave her off the ballot simply because she'll be honored elsewhere. Chris, let's take a break because I want to get to the goods. I want to hear your conversation with Haley Atwell. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Chasing Emmy, the podcast. 
Our guest this week is Haley Atwell, star of the four-part adaptation of Howard's End on Stars. She is riveting as Margaret Schlegel, a woman in turn-of-the-century London who finds herself torn between the progressive intellectual life she lives with her sister and the upper-class society she marries into. Haley, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for um, helping me find the time to do it. So I wanted to talk to you all about Howard's End, which I loved so much. And I uh, I just was rewatching parts of it and getting all like worked up again. But anyway, so the, the book is such a classic. And obviously, the, the Merchant Ivory film was so wonderful. Uh, what interested you the most about being part of the new adaptation? It's kind of long again for me. As soon as I heard he was adapting it, it didn't really, I mean, that in itself, you know, when you hear, for me, when I hear the word Kenny Lonergan, I instantly think of, ah, the, the actor's writer. He writes human beings well, and I believe them, and I believe that he's good at, he doesn't kind of reduce a character to just pure exposition to drive plot. He is very good at, allowing a scene to convey everything that is not said and what's going on under the surface. So he's very good at making the actor think in the world of the character as well as just say the lines. And I've seen that in his earlier you know, earlier work and had recently seen Manchester by the Sea. So for me, that was, um, that was the immediate response I had to it. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't that familiar with the book. I'd seen the film, of course, and loved it. But the idea of it being a period drama is not something that really came into my, you know, the forefront of my mind. It's, for me, it was the characters and the challenges of bringing as much b- clever, brighter, nuanced character as Margaret Schlegel to, to, to the world, to put that out in there as being part of the conversation about what is represented on our TV screens right now, what needs to be seen. Exactly. And it's interesting. I'm rereading the book now after watching just because I loved it so much. And it's so remarkable how closely the show follows the book, but it also, it doesn't feel, it feels very fresh as well. Did you end up reading the book? Yeah. So we use the book as reference and we have it on set with us. And Hetty McDonald, we would rehearse with her in the morning our director, um, just us on set with the book and the script on hand. And as you know, a lot of the dialogue in the script, you can see it's directly taken from the book. And, and Kenny was going, well, you know, I just kind of got out of the way and let the book tell itself visually. And I think that's kind of is remarkable at how quickly it zips past. And I think that's also because it tells you that these characters are fast thinking, fast talking women. And they're inquisitive and curious and they are engaged in the world. So far from being kind of swanning around loose and, uh, you know, passive and, you know, uh, being oppressed women of their time, that they are uh, working within their time, but to free themselves of the restraints of the time. So that, there's a lot of detail about that inner world in the book. And what was great in when we rehearsed those scenes is we could go back to those particular moments in the book and fill in, for me, fill in her inner world, her inner landscape. So I could see within the book where she, where she was in that moment in her own head. And then that informed some of the delivery of the line. 
And, you know, the love story between Margaret and Henry is so moving, even though everyone's very reserved and very British about it. I'd love to hear you talk about the challenge of conveying sort of the passion of their romance while maintaining the very sort of impressive composure of these characters. Yes, um, I think that's uh, the thing that we have inherited as British British people uh, is that we have this a rich a, a rich inner life of uh, inner life often completely covered up by etiquette of the time and and composure of the time and um, what I find kind of remarkable about their relationship and I suppose what is challenging for a modern day audience and what we really wanted to try and help uh, convey to a modern day audience is you have a quite a mature relationship here where these two people seem to from very different worlds, very different value systems almost. And, and you could almost imagine that their differences would move them way apart from each other. And that you'd be more inclined to think that Margaret, Margaret would think of Mr. Wilcox the way that Helen thinks of Mr. Wilcox. You know, here is a man who would not call himself a feminist, who um, is married to a woman at the beginning who, who believes that women shouldn't have the vote and is a capitalist and makes money out of taking advantage of people like the Basques. And you think, surely he's part of the problem, and he is represents the system. And you've got Margaret and Helen uh, in kind of going, well, they're in the system, they understand that they've got a part in the system, their privilege is partly because of the system, but they're trying to buck up against it in a way that doesn't make people like the Wilcoxes run a mile, but actually tries to create any sort of actual change. And I think the relationship with Margaret is, Showing the audience, this is not that she that Henry does not complete her, that she will not seek to change Henry, that she doesn't look for the person that is going to be an absolute mirror image of who she is, and that that is still enough, that there is still a connection, that their similarities as human beings will are closer than their differences. And in him, she sees probably aspects of himself that he doesn't see. So she sees that he's emotionally constipated. She sees that his drive and his ambition and his social status has gotten in the way of personal relationships with his own family. And also he's carrying a lot of shame for having once experienced loneliness, which led him to taking a mistress. And Margaret remarkably can see all of the workings of this man more than and is more conscious of them than he is of himself and yet she doesn't seek to try and critique him to shame him with all this information that she has about his character only just to connect with him as he is and that i think is kind of evolved and remarkable and especially when we have many stories especially being brought up on lots of films which were about you know, finding your soulmate, finding the one, finding the twin that matches who you are and going, well, no wonder we're in so much trouble <laughs> as a society when it comes to romantic relationships. We're not really taught the skill set involved about getting on with another human being who is different from us once the lust fades and, you know, all, all that's considered the boring part of the relationship, which in fact is most of the duration of a relationship if one is married to that person for long enough. You know, so so I often find that we have in films and TV, when we have any sort of romantic narrative, a lot of it can be about, you know, and they lived happily ever after. And going, well, what if the happy ever after was, was, was troubled as it is in real life? And I think with Henry and Margaret, you're, what's being represented is two very, very different people who are 
attempting to understand each other or at least be companions to each other and stand beside each other without trying to change one another. That makes sense. It's quite complicated. It is, but it's also, it's wonderful in how evolved it is, as you put it, but it's also, there's some really beautifully romantic moments even with all that, just I'm thinking of the line when she first says, Mr. Wilcox, you quite take my breath away. Like that was a swoon worthy moment in all of that, you know, buttoned up British composure. And I just I think it's impressive that you were able to convey that amidst everything you just said in terms of how realistic their relationship is. Yeah, it, well, it's also it's very much a character trait of Margaret. She's so explicit. She's She's sensitive, and but she does say, you know, she does go, oh, you take my breath away, as if it's just like she's reading off the shopping list. She's brave enough to kind of just teach her, and, and when she goes, well, I have £600 a year. <laughs> but there's a kind of a sweetness about how open she is. She, she has no shame, you know, and, and I think Henry does. Henry's full of shame and wants to be seen a certain way and, and very socially awkward and not quite ever getting it right. And I think Margaret is endeared to him because of that. You know, the kiss where they have where it goes, it's awful, it's a terrible kiss. So Margaret goes in again to teach him what a real kiss is. <laughs> to me, with um, it's so real, it's so, it's so human. It's, of course, it's, you know, many, 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 many moments of real life of, of the beginnings of intimacy often are very, very awkward. We're two human beings, you know, bang heads. It's lovely. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people have talked about how the themes of the book are still very relevant. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, uh, what Forster was trying to convey. And I'm wondering what you think, given what happens to Leonard. It's almost as though his message is that one's social status is predetermined and trying to mess with fate will end badly. Uh, and I'm wondering how, how you view this idea, especially in the current, you know, applying it to how we live today. Yeah, uh, yes, I, I think that is true. I think Forster is saying that, um, that, you know, if you if you try and change that social construct, which seems to be, you know, once you're born into it, it, it is innate, um, that if you try and shift those boundaries or you can create sort of real change, it can have dire consequences, um, or even, or worse, you know, nothing can happen and things remain the same. And of course, Leonard loses his life because of that. However, what happens in the story is that the readers know that Howard's End, which represents England as we know it, represents that particular class, it represents ownership of a space, of a place, of a land, that is going to be inherited one day by Leonard Bast's child, the illegitimate child that he has with Helen. So he does get it. He wins. He is, in a way, you could say symbolically, he sacrifices his life. And it will be given to that child one day. So there is change that happens, that will happen. But it, it's not for free and it's always at a cost. And then what happens at the end of the book, which you don't see in, the sh- in our show, is that you hear the rumble of thunder and of course, Ian Forster was creating that sense of pathetic fallacy or foreboding um, of the First World War is about to happen. And all these boys, all these young men are, were about to lose them all. So change is coming. And I think he's saying change is inevitable. 
I think he's also saying, though, that in bucking up against the system, although it creates things like terrible loss and terrible tragedy, uh, sometimes that can um, have a knock-on effect of creating some sort of change. Does that make sense? So there has to be, as if you link it today in terms of um, in terms of the absolute grief and rage and tragedy that's come out of women coming forward in, in Hollywood and also in other industries around the world, and finally having a vocabulary that begins with Me Too, and that begins with, I, 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 I'm, I, this is this is not right. And the, all the kind of the resistance and the anger that comes you know, from that is the beginning of creating some sort of change. So although the, there's all this incredible pain, out of this pain is created this huge kind of energy for shift and change to begin. So kind of linking it in that, in a, without sounding kind of too kind of intellectual metaphorical, you have this illegitimate bastard child who by all accounts and purposes should end up like Bath because that's what he's been brought in, you know, brought into. But for Margaret, who's so kind of evolved as a human, she says, I will give this house, this place, this social status to the illegitimate son of child of, of Leonard Bath. She, in her position of power, has just changed the system from within. That makes me feel better thinking about it that way because it it is there is sacrifice, but it does come to you know it means that he it does mean a little bit of positivity and switching gears. I just wanted to talk to you about uh, Alex Lothar, who plays Tibby, who is so funny, and I'm just wondering how you kept a straight face in scenes with him. He's just uh, I loved that we got to see more Tibby uh, in this production than we did in the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it's very, it's very hard. I mean, we did giggle a lot, and so especially when he's, you know, he's he's on the couch going, "You can't go to Howard's End. I'm very ill, and I need someone to come and read it to me." And then, you know, he, once the doctor tells me that I can't go to Howard's End, of course, then, then Tibby looks at me and pops a little bit of Turkish delight in his mouth, very, very pleased with himself. And it's, and it was very. I mean, Alex is so sweet and so playful. He would, um, he would just see how far he could push it, and there were times when Hattie would go. Alex, you can't, that's just too much. That's just, you know, you can imagine a spin-off of Tibby and his own little eccentric world of hypochondria and fossils. Um, and we had like an ongoing, <laughs> an ongoing joke that Tibby's troubles have all stemmed from the fact that Aunt Julia is still breastfeeding him. It's <laughs> <laughs> entirely I possible. I like a real giggle about that. And then, and then um, we were talking about Tibby always having imaginary friends. So I went on to Etsy and I got on this really weird-looking puppet and I just left it in his trailer one day. It was Tibby's <laughs> invisible friend. Um, <laughs> so it was, we had all these kind of very silly backstories for each of our characters, um, which is great because you never want to feel like you're taking yourself too seriously, the work that you take seriously and what's required of you. But I always find that creative sets, uh, and sets where everyone's up in their game are ones where there's a lot of play happening. And if I can find ways to make people giggle or do little pranks, it relieves any sort of tension and it bursts the bubble of people living in their own heads trying to focus on just their own little bit. Um, and so we, we played with that. You know, we had an ongoing gag that, in fact, maybe this whole time, Margaret's actually kind of an evil genius mastermind where she's set out to, to completely emasculate um, Mr. Wilcox. So by the end, he is a giant baby and he can't string a sentence together anymore. 
which is why at the end he's like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't do wrong, did I? Like he just can't even, he doesn't even know what he doesn't know anymore. So he's a mess. And how Margaret at the end says, he's just eternally tired. And you think he's sat in, a, in, his, in his bedroom, just in a giant diaper, eating rusks. So of course, on the last day of that, I, um, I, I planted a diaper inside Matthew McFadden's costume and then like a training posse in his bathroom, and then I put a pacifier in his pocket, and I got the runners every time he asked for a cup of tea. He was given a cup of tea and a sippy cup with a bib at lunchtime. And <laughs> it was really, it was very funny. It was very naughty. It sounds like you're fun to work with. Well, I like to have fun. I really like to have fun. I don't, I want to know what I'm doing and, and then I kind of, it's very important to me that I'm not taking myself seriously and, and that I can make fun of myself because I'm just more relaxed actually when it comes to doing the work and I get out of my own ego, you see, and I'm able to focus on the work at home. And I, th- I think with Margaret, she's fascinating to me. I had to go to her, which means you don't reduce the work to who you are by kind of, figure out what's going on in her world and at any given time and it's often infinitely more interesting about what's going on in your own world which is do I look good in this from this angle do I you know (laughs) um you know any sort of thing like that it was outward looking so I made sure on set that I too in between takes was outward looking and I was engaged with with everyone else it's also such a beautiful production just you know visually uh and the costumes in the wardrobe are just so gorgeous. How long did it take you to get ready? Uh, you know, often your hair was up in these beautiful, elaborate, you know, hairdos. And was it something, was it a long process? Um, I don't really know, really. I don't really pay attention to how much it takes. I'm just going on with it, um, reading the book and the makeup trailer, that sort of thing. And I think, I mean, I did laugh first of my talk because I'm not wearing any makeup. Um, and in fact, I'm made to look much more of a spinster. Um, and, and also my hair at times looks like a giant blue emoji. So this wasn't a vanity project for me in that regard. (laughs) Well, you still looked great. I didn't think it looked like a giant poo emoji, but I I can see that, I guess. Thank you. I think what I liked is that the costumes, again, were wanting to tell a story visually. So you have, at the beginning, we worked out economically they would live on about £30,000 a year in today's money, which is a good amount to live on, but definitely not the ostentatious amount to live on, whereby they can go out and buy themselves expensive fashions of the day. So, of course, that's reflected in the fact that you see a shirt or a skirt repeated, and their colour palette is kind of bohemian, and it's full of colour, lots of reds and greens and blues, that sort of thing. And when she marries Mr. Wilcox, her hair gets a little bit more severe, the clothes become a little bit more structured, a little bit more married, kept woman. And that's also at the time when she's really starting to, we're starting to lose Margaret, the Margaret that the audience have already kind of loved and who's our heroine. And you can see her doubting herself and losing Helen and not having the sense of where she's going to live. Um, You know, all of that being very much told as well, but visually with what she's wearing at the time. And then towards the end, how she, you know, the hair softened slightly. So the look of it was very much about where is she at emotionally at any time in the story. And there's wonderful detail with Sheena Napier, who is so meticulous with her costumes that she would say, you know, she, you get add little details that are not in the script, but of course you could see visually. So, for example, at the beginning, Ruth Wilcox has this tiny little purple brooch in one scene. And then later on, after she's passed away, I was doing a scene with Bessie Carter, who plays Evie, her daughter in it. And I looked at, oh, she's wearing the purple brooch. I'm thinking, oh, of course, 
Tina has realized that that would have been a family heirloom. Of course, she would have had that from her mother in the past. And this is also a tiny little subliminal message to the audience that Ruth Wilcox's presence is still very much an important part of the story. So those are tiny little details that we would miss, obviously, we wouldn't be conscious of. But I think I think you appeal to the audience's intelligence by, by having each moment there for a reason, each comma, each brooch, each article of clothing is there is a considered thing to help tell the story bit by bit. And it's all the details there should we choose to look at it. And that's a very rich world to work in as an actor. You'd open up a prop drawer and the art department had put loads of letters in there between Julie and, and, and Margaret and taken things from the book that, of course, you never see in the script or on, this, on, the, on camera, but... It's knowing that they're there. We're wanting the audience to go, do you know what? I bet if I actually was there and I opened up that drawer, it would be filled with things. And I think that helps, that draws the audience in going, this is a fully formed world and you're part of it. And there's just little symbols along the way. And Forster's very detailed in his story as well. So, for example, these the character's names. Will Cox. I mean, you can't get more phallic than that, can you? Will and Cock. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then you have bast, and bast was the name of a material used, it was a very cheap material used to put on the sole of very cheap shoes. So you have bast being literally stood on by the upper classes. And then you have Schlegel, and that is the name of a German philosopher. So you have, of course, they are the, the name of the world of ideas and of the intellect and of the mind and our place in the world all come through that word Schlegel. So that's the level of detail. That's why this is a text can be studied at university level there's so much in it so I think visually we were wanting to put as much detail as we could as well as well as making it just emotionally accessible to a modern day audience to an audience who wouldn't necessarily want to watch that particular genre or to feel that it would be stuffy but by going no this is um this is there's something in here for you this is for you this is also commenting on where we are today and these are women who are who are multifaceted and complex and dynamic, and they have the right to be hypocritical and contradictory and confused. And then they also make mistakes, and then they come back to themselves, and then they become wiser. Then sometimes they become not so wise, and you have people, you know, they're working it out as they go along, as we are, creating and navigating life as we go along, doing the best we can not to make too many disastrous mistakes. But along the way, figuring it out, and hopefully with people around us who are on the same path, and that's ultimately what this story is. You know, two girls figuring it out based on that place in time that they happen to live, and the and the restraint that women still have to doubt their own intellect, doubt their own minds, because their qualities are not particularly celebrated. It's beauty nowadays that is celebrated. It is overt sexuality in women that is celebrated and, and overrepresented in the arts. So slowly but surely, I think we're, we're getting, women are feeling empowered to go listen to what I think, what I feel, what I say, what I do, not just what I look like to you as an object of your own desire. It's such a wonderful series, and I'm so glad that you were able to take time to speak with us about it. Thank you so much. And, uh, Yes, it was really great speaking to you, and good luck on your next projects, and I hope that we'll see you on TV again soon. We love having you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I could talk about how it's meant for cows come home. 
All right, that wraps up another edition of Chasing Emmy. Uh, Please join us again for the next installment because we're going to be talking about Best Comedy Actress and Best Supporting Comedy Actress. And I know, in fact, that Kristen has some very passionate uh, opinions to share with you all. Uh, Anyway, uh, bye now.